everyone. My name is Luby, and I am the Education Manager at DS Act. I hope you found our first podcast really helpful. For those whose first episode is today, I wanted to take some time to introduce myself. I started working with DS Act last fall, and I've been excited to get to know our members and professionals in the community. Prior to working at DS Act, I went to UT for my master's in special education and taught at the Rice School of Austin for seven years. Now I am working with DS Act to support parents and educators. Please remember that I am here to support you and can be reached at luvi.wilson at dsact.org. For today's episode, I wanted to bring on a formal special education teacher who I had the pleasure of working with directly. She is now working toward being an LSSP, licensed specialist in school psychology, and continues to bring her passion and dedication to the special education world with this new role. It is a pleasure to introduce you all to Jackie Borrego. Hi, Jackie. I'm really excited to talk to you today. Can you tell us a little about yourself? Hey, Lizzie. First, I want to thank you and thank the DSACT community for having me on. This is such an honor. And since we work so closely together, I'm really happy to be here. Um, I feel like you kind of know my whole journey. Like I taught with you and I taught for two years at the Rice School of Austin. Um, Previously or before that, I worked as a paraprofessional in a life skills class. And before that, I worked as a speech language pathology assistant. So I knew I wanted to be in the world of special education. I didn't exactly know like where I fit. And whenever I was working as a paraprofessional, I knew that licensed specialists and school psychologists were a thing. I just didn't exactly know what their role was within special education in the public schools. So I started teaching at RISE. I got my alternative teaching certificate. I taught at RISE for two years and I loved that. And I realized that I loved being at the beginning stages of children's special education process. Um, I got to experience a lot of parents in transition from leaving RISE and moving into the public education schools. Um, Given that private education systems don't always serve students that have disabilities and a lot of the population that we serve at RISE have students with disabilities, I knew that these parents were feeling overwhelmed and worried about what the process is gonna look like in the schools. So I ended up going back to become an LSSP, licensed specialist in school psychology. I'm actually still in my internship year and I graduate in May of this year. So like in a couple of months, I'm so excited. Mm -hmm. Um, And I get to kind of be one of those first people that parents get to interact with whenever their children get classified for special education within the school system or like a lot of our families that rise that have children that have Down syndrome or a genetic disability or have been previously diagnosed with autism, those like early identifiable classifications that are kind of coming in with already a known disability. um, I get to kind of guide them at the beginning of this is what things are going to look like as we move forward in the process. And it's been such a joy and such a pleasure. It's different. It's different um, than anything I've done before, but I absolutely love it. It is a really, I feel like, very interesting concept because you're still working with kids, but you're not directly in the classroom. So I would love for you to be able to explain exactly like what an LSSP does, like what your responsibilities are. Like, do you do a lot of the evaluations? How does that all that work? Oh, that's a big question. So what do LSSPs do? I actually just saw a meme today that was really funny and said, like, we're the ninjas of special education. You don't always know what we do, but we're always like observing, <laughs> we're always lurking, we're there when you need us. Um, so our primary role is assessment and evaluation. So as I kind of alluded to earlier, 
parents come in um, with previous classifications and we will see if we will accept those classifications based on 13 eligibility categories that we have through the Texas Education Agency. Um, or sometimes let's, for example, say Lily, you're a first grade teacher, you have a student who still doesn't know their letters, is having trouble identifying sounds, is having trouble remembering shapes, and we're already at the second half of you know the year. And you're like, hmm, my kid is kind of falling behind. I'm not exactly sure. I've tried all of these things. I've tried small groups. I've tried these interventions. We already have the student getting um, a lot of small group and a lot of other supports from me. They're still not picking up on things. I think we need to do a formal evaluation. Um, that's where I would come in. And I would do a formal cognitive assessment. I will do formal academic assessment. And then based on the needs of the student, depending on the referral question, if it's not academic in nature, let's say a student comes in, it's emotional in nature um, or social emotional in nature. And we are seeing a lot of anxiety or performance, um, performance concerns. We're seeing some depression tendencies. I will also do uh, an emotional psychoeducational evaluation for that student. And then finally, too, like another big part of our job and assessment is focusing on autism assessments as well. That kind of looks like a multidisciplinary approach. It's really nice. So typically we have a speech pathologist, an occupational therapist if we need to, a diagnostician. We'll have the LSSP and we'll do kind of like a full formal play-based evaluation depending on the age of the student to see and identify for autism. So it's a big piece of our role. We also do behavior support and intervention. So we create functional behavior assessments. We also do behavior support plans um, for our students, depending on their needs, whether they have an emotional disturbance or they just have high levels of anxiety or depression inside the classroom setting. Um, this tends to look like getting called whenever desks are being thrown or children are being hit or teachers are being punched, that type of thing. We'll come in and we'll intervene, boots on the ground, and we'll hopefully provide teachers with tools to keep them and their students safe, as well as that student too. And then another piece of it is we do um, a lot of consultation as well. So for example, movie, you're a teacher. Let's say you come to me six weeks in, we'll use that student that we talked about from the beginning. Um, you're like, she came in, she doesn't really know how to do a lot of things. I'm not exactly sure. I'll observe the class, I'll observe you. And then kind of just provide, we'll work as a team together to try to figure out if there are things that you can maybe try to do before we jump straight into an evaluation. So a lot of consultation in my role as well. So a lot of things, wear many hats. Yes, I can um, tell. <laughs> so with yeah, all it's fun. That, do you also help with like goal writing and IEPs or is that separate? Yeah, it's a great question. So we do work very closely with our resource and inclusion teachers. So if we do decide as a, you know, whole ARD committee, which parents are part of the ARD committee, if we do accept, if we do decide to accept, Um, we do end up working very closely with our um, special education teachers, and they're the ones who do a lot of the academic goals. So they'll do like the academic goals, the accommodations and the modifications for the classroom. But let's say I, the child needs a behavior support plan, um, I will tend to do those goals. And if that student needs direct psychological services or direct psychological care, um, they, those goals will typically come through me. So then do you work hand in hand with a behavioral specialist as well? Or how do they differentiate if they're going to get an LSSP to come do like a FBA versus a behavioral specialist? 
Yeah, that's a great question. So because we're trained, we don't need to get a behavior specialist to come in. We're trained as behavior specialists as well. Okay. So we take classes in applied behavior analysis. We take classes on writing formal functional behavior assessments, BIPs, functions of behavior, all that fun stuff. So it definitely makes the job challenging because we have to switch between hats. But if you think about it, the role of an LSSP is all-encompassing and it's holistic, right? We're not just looking at one piece of the child. We're not just looking at their cognition or their academics. We're looking at how their cognition plays into their academics, how their academics play into their behavior and vice versa. It's kind of this revolving door whenever you're trying to program for a student to not just isolate things, to look at everything holistically. That's not to say that every child needs a behavior support plan, right? Like not every child needs behavior goals. Not every child needs social emotional goals. Not every child needs reading goals. So it just kind of depends on the needs of the student. And when you're coming up with those individual educational plans, those IEPs, what does the student need? And who is the one that's best to serve those whenever it comes to writing the goals? Sometimes it's the LSSP. Sometimes it's a resource inclusion teacher. More, more often than not, it's a resource inclusion teacher. And then we kind of just help facilitate with other recommendations based on classroom support. And if a child does not fall under any of the eligibility for special ed, but yet they need an FBA, are you still able to do that? Or does other testing have to be done prior? Yeah, it's a great question. So I actually am just working with a case like that right now. So the student is not qualifying um, for any of the eligibility categories, but definitely could still use support in the classroom. Um, so it's not going to be formalized. It's not going to be any sort of legal documentation based on IEPs. But we are, I did go ahead and write up a FBA, a functional behavior assessment. I did come up with the functions of behavior. I did do in-depth interviews with the teachers, observations of the student. I worked with the student directly and I came up with a plan. Um, and we're going to kind of talk with the teacher and see what's feasible, right? I think a big part of my job too is not just to like write up this report and say, teacher, you have to do this because that's just not how it works in the public school system. I have to, we have to figure out what is going to functionally work in the classroom yeah. for the teacher to help support the student the best way that they can. Perfect. Thanks for clarifying that. Yeah. And I think what I really want to talk about too, is just from my experience working with families, I've heard concerns from parents about all the evaluations. I think part of that concern stems from like the fear of the unknown, not truly really grasping what these evaluations look like, how they can help determine services for students and so many other factors. Like what happened if my, what happens if my child doesn't perform with an adult stranger in the room or what if they're um, at the time nonverbal or things modified um, what happens if they shut down? So all these questions that parents have, um, can you go into detail on, kind of what that looks like, but also how we can help families become more comfortable with the process. Yeah, absolutely. This is kind of big area that I'm very passionate about because I think there's so much fear. There's so much fear about what are these numbers and what is this data going to say about my child when I think my child is absolutely perfect and the most amazing thing. Um, and I think there's like a big misconception in how we use the data and I will say, at least me, the way I've been trained in my program um, is we don't ever take data for just data. Parents are the experts on their child and getting an in-depth parent interview and background history is critical piece in any of our evaluations. I think also um, not using one data point to answer the referral question is highly imperative. I touched on that before. We look at the child from a holistic lens. We really try to see like, are there other factors that are involved that could be 
contributing to the difficulties that the child is having. And we best try to program for those specific things. Um, and ultimately just like listen, like listen to parents, listen to the student and to the fear about like children shutting down. I will say I have dealt with all, all of the things at all the kids being super compliant, kids being very non-compliant, children having a lot of anxiety, children needing modifications in the way that I test. And it's really interesting because when it comes to the academic bat or the batteries that we have, whether it's cognitive or academic, there's modifications within the parameters that you can. So for some of the cognitive tests, you can do nonverbal scales. For some of the academics, you can do, you can modify within if it doesn't break standardization. Um, for one of my students that really needed scheduling, like really was really helpful. I made a visual schedule for him for actual evaluation that made evaluation move way smoother. So your LSSPs are trained in these types of things in order to best handle these types of situations that deem to be very challenging. Yes, is there a goal to have the student perform and do these things that we need so that we can get the best data to best serve the child? Absolutely, but we're never gonna do anything that's gonna put the child in distress or put the child at harm's way. And sometimes too, if we need to consult with other LSSPs, if we need to recuse ourselves, if we need other support, like ideas of what we can do to help serve the kid, to have them have the best experience for our evaluation, we do all those things too. Um, and also too, oh, I didn't even mention a part of my job is counseling as well. We're also trained in counseling. So we do social skills groups. We do individual counseling as well. So a lot of the times I think what people don't realize is that LSSPs bring those soft skills into our evaluations as well. We have things like fidgets. We have things like flexible seating. We have things like we do timed breaks. We, if we see that the student is having fatigue, we stop testing. If we see that we're not getting where we stop testing. We do rapport building activities like playing games before we just go into testing. Now, again, it depends. If you have a kid that comes in as like seventh grade, is like ready to just sit down and get, get all this over with, you go with that too. Like you follow the child's lead and what they need, depending on the age that they are and the level that they're at. So I think there's reason for parents to feel like, what if they don't respond? I will tell you, your children are way more resilient than you probably are giving them credit for. And two, the professionals that are working with them are that. They are professionals and they know how to handle multitude of situations that are thrown at them, whether it's modifying, um, adding more visuals for their testing, or even just consulting with other LSSPs or speech pathologists or OTs to better inform their evaluation. It really sounds like LSSPs are just like all encompassing with all the skills like behavior yeah. training and OT fidgets and all of that. That's really interesting. I don't think I realized how many hats LSSPs wear. Yeah. And I was just thinking when you were talking to, um, do you ever go to ARDS? Like, can parents request you? Cause I feel like in some of the ARDS I've been in, they have like a SLP or OT there, but that I can recall, I haven't been on in one with an LSSP. How does that work usually? Yes. Yeah, so more often than not, there should be someone there that's explaining evaluation results. There should be an LSSP or maybe in the ARDS that you've been, there's been a diagnostician. So diagnosticians play a big piece in the puzzle as well. Um, they are trained in academic and cognitive assessment as well. So formal cognitive training, formal academic training. Um, they aren't necessarily trained in the autism or social, emotional, emotional, behavioral disturbance piece. That's where a lot of the LSSPs roll come in, but 
In every R, there should be someone who's able to fully explain the evaluation results. And right. two, whenever it comes to ARD meetings, parents have the right paperwork should be completed before the ARD even occurs. So someone should be giving them a call prior to the ARD meeting. That's typically best practice. It's not always the case based on how many evaluations are open at the time, but more often than not for me, I like to call my, I like to call my parents before we even have the ARD. So if they have questions, they can bring them to the ARD meeting. Um, I typically like to provide a drafted version of the evaluation to the parents so they can review it before because they are long, they are jargony, and I think it's our job to best try to break it down to explain to them in layman's terms. Now, does this happen across every school at every art and every district? That's the challenging part that kind of rolls with public education, but as a parent, know that you have your rights to have this evaluation explained to you. And if you feel confused during the ARD meeting or after the ARD meeting, your LSSP will always be there to be able to break things down for you. They are partner with you. Um, everybody that is there at that ARD meeting wants to do what's best for the child. Now, sometimes there are parameters to that within the school setting, right? There are things that the schools can provide and there are things that unfortunately the schools can't. But with the resources and capabilities that they do have, you, your LSSP and your campus will do whatever they can to make sure your child is being best served. And then I know a couple of weeks ago we talked about, or you mentioned that it's really important for and beneficial for parents to be active participants on that team. Can you go into detail about that? Yeah, I think there's a lot that your LSSP will ask for me or your diagnostician. Um, that's rating scales, interviews, background information. Um, and this is kind of the foundation, at least for me, when I'm doing my evaluations, this is like the solid foundation. This is like the soil that I'm like trying to fertilize so I can start making sense of all these scores that I'm getting when I'm seeing the student. So I think even just from that point, just as your LSP, your diagnostician, your SLP, your OT, they're asking you questions, providing them as detailed of information as you possibly can. And then they will kind of sift through um, what is useful for the evaluation, again, for programming and to answer referral questions. Um, but that is kind of a great place to start building a trusting relationship with your school psychologist or with your diagnostician. Um, and I think just asking questions along the way asking questions via email, via phone, just because your student at some point is going to become a middle schooler who may or may not continue to need services, but two, they're going to be able, they're going to be able to start advocating for themselves too. You may want them to start being involved in these meetings and their programming as well. And if you don't ever get questions yourself answered, how are you going to ever be able to help support your child and learning how to advocate for themselves, which in schools, that's what our schools are doing too. Ultimately, they're allowing their teaching skills for our children to advocate for themselves within a school setting as well. So I think just being open and willing to like talk with your LSSP and ask those questions. Like, I don't exactly know what you mean by that. Can you explain to me further? Instead of just being like, oh, like, I don't know, like, I'm not going to ask that question. I don't want to seem silly or it's so novel. Um, someone is always willing to talk with you and explain things further in detail with you. So just don't be afraid to ask those questions either before the meeting or um, before the ARD meeting, after the ARD meeting, or even during the ARD meeting as well. I really like what you said about having the actual student be present in the ARD meeting. I read a little bit about that and think it's just such a great idea, not only to teach self-advocacy, but also to kind of put a 
like a face to what everyone's talking about. And they were all there for the same reason. Yeah. Is there an age that you would just personally recommend for a student to start doing that? It really depends. I think for us as school psychologists, it's like a very fine line. Once they're in fourth and fifth grade, if they're like, say a student that has autism or student that has down syndrome, like we never want to step on parents' toes and ever explain something in further detail to a child. If the parents haven't had those conversations with their child first. So first and foremost, we will never be doing that without parent consent. But if parents ever come and have questions like how how do I go about this I think fifth grade is a good time like going into sixth grade I think once you're 11 10 11 12 like being able to know and understand like what is helpful for you is starts happening I had a fifth grader this year who said sometimes working out in the hallway is helpful for me and her teacher and her have come up with that and it's been helpful so I made sure to write it in her behavior plan because she's going to middle school and her middle school teachers are new and making sure that they know that that is something that's helpful and she's responsible with that. And I've had the conversation with that student, like the moment that you breach that trust and you're not in the hallway when you need to be, that goes away. So I think fifth grade going to sixth grade is a great time. I think in middle school, all of our students should be attending their art meetings. Again, it doesn't happen all the time, but even just having conversations with their student, like what is helpful? I think making sure that your LSSP is asking those questions or you as a parent is asking those questions so that you can bring them to the ARD meeting too. That's a very helpful tool saying like, I talked with my student, we're talking about their educational programming. They say that these things are helpful. They say these things are not so that we can also better use the resources in the schools too. Because if we're giving them extra time and they don't really need extra time, for example, they're like, actually finished on time. I don't need that. Then that's an accommodation that can be going towards someone else not that they're allotted, but you know what I mean? Just like the resources and inclusion, all that stuff. I feel like just, it's like a teachable moment too, where <coughs> especially when they're in middle school. And if you have that conversation with your child before the meeting, like, this is what the meeting looks like. We're here to help mm-hmm. you. Like, please co- or come up with like one or two things that you think are helpful or not helpful. And like having them really think about that and then playing an active role in the meeting and not just sitting, listening to parents and a team talk about them, but making them also participate, I think is so wonderful and our skills that they will need in the future too, to be able to self-advocate and also to just have that um, understanding of what is helpful for them, what's not helpful for them and kind of put those things together too. So I think that's great. I, I hope that people who are listening now, if they have kids who are a little older, if they think me, that they may be able to start bringing their kids to the, to their art meetings, that'd be great. Yeah. And I think, I think too, it's, something to remember being in the schools. Like, again, I know our children are like our most precious gift and I think parents worry, they worry, you know, they get this code, special education, like, what does it mean? But just know like your kids can advocate for themselves. Your children do understand and know their needs. And also like this programming can change at any point in time. You can call an ARD meeting. We have these annual ARD meetings, which I think a lot of the times for the parents that I've experienced, like that's more than enough. It's like, gosh, we are talking all the time. Like we need, you know, the ARD meeting, it feels like it's a long time. Like I think some parents are like, oh my God, we're only meeting one a year about my child's educational programming. But it's like, every time you have an annual ARD, you're like, wow, I can't believe it's already been another year. So just knowing like you have the opportunity to change the programming at any time. Um, you can call an ARD meeting whenever you need to. If you think things aren't working, if you want to talk about programming, you also don't need 
to call an ARD meeting to talk about programming. You can always talk to your campus resource teacher, your inclusion teacher, the counselor, whomever's involved in the programming to kind of get updates, which you should be getting progress reports every six weeks about how your child is doing with the accommodation and modifications that they're doing or that they're having. Um, but just know that these things aren't ever set in stone. And these things are really just here to kind of help your student access the education system the best way that they possibly can. That was a lot of really amazing information. I know um, that we're running out of time. So I love that we had, we talked about even more than I had anticipated. It, I, talking to you is just so natural that I, I just feel like even I learned so much from what you were okay. saying. So to wrap it up, I wanted to see if you have any kind of final topics you wanted to go over or any just bits of advice or anything like that. Or if you feel like you gave a lot of information to, um, <laughs> I think you were, I mean, you went into detail about so many things. I think that was great. Thank you. Yeah. Um, just let families know, like, I would like for everybody to know that it sometimes doesn't feel like people in the schools are a team and that they, that they want to be on your side because of budgets or resources, but know that on this side, like on the inside of it, that is absolutely all that we want. We want your child to be as successful academically, socially, cognitively, and how we can bridge these gaps between home and school is really all that we want. So um, if you start feeling unnerved or uncomfortable, just open up the floor to have those conversations because I promise you, your diagnosticians, your LSSPs, your special education teachers, like everybody just wants what's best for your child. Um, that's why we got into this field, but I really appreciate you taking the time to have me on. This is so much fun. I can't wait to actually be like a licensed specialist in school psychology and not a student of licensed specialist in school psychology. We're being but a student, you are so knowledgeable. So thank coming you so close. much for coming on here today. <laughs> yeah. Thank you guys so much. And let me know if you ever want to do it again. Thank you, Jackie. Talk to you later. <laughs>